chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Well, it was amazing how when I first started here a little over a year ago, how uh, so much of what we were doing was sort of incidentally coinciding with the Protestant Reformation. And so we kind of just decided to go with that, and now it's been more intentional than unintentional. But the last year, so much of what we've been doing, whether it's been the sermon series or the Wednesday night class or Sunday school, has been tied to the great doctrines that came out of the Protestant Reformation. And so you've probably heard me say uh, ad nauseum at this point, the five solas of the Reformation. So hopefully you have them memorized. Hopefully you know them. The five solas, sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus in Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Those five Latin phrases came to sort of characterize or summarize, if you will, the Protestant doctrine of the Reformers. Now, what's interesting about those five solas is that the Roman Catholic position, which they were in response to, doesn't reject all of them. And so many Roman Catholic theologians, both in the past and in present, sort of take issue with the five solas being claimed by the Protestants because they agree wholeheartedly, in their opinion, with at least three of them. The only two that the Roman Catholic Church then and now formally uh, rejects are sola fide and sola scriptura. Roman Catholicism does not believe that the Bible is the only place that God has infallibly spoken to guide the church. They would say the Bible is insufficient for the Christian. It's not enough by itself. There is a sacred tradition and an infallible magisterium in the church that guides and directs and fulfills that great deposit that the apostles gave to the church. So they reject sola scriptura formally. They reject sola fide formally. They would argue that faith is a necessary requirement of salvation, but it is not sufficient to justify you. You can believe in Christ, but that does not guarantee that you are justified. So they reject those two formally and proudly. But if you were to go up to a a Roman Catholic, either back then or today, and say, why do you reject that salvation is in Christ alone? They would say, I don't. I agree with solus Christus. If you were to go up and say, why do you reject sola gratia, grace alone? They would say, I don't. I agree with that. We are only saved by God's grace. If you were to say, why do you believe that your system doesn't bring all glory to God? They would say, I don't. I do believe that the Roman Catholic system of theology is only to God's glory. So they don't reject those. But the reason the Reformers included them is because while they believed that the Roman Catholic Church said to agree with these things, the argument was that their theology, regardless of their profession, actually did contradict those solas. 
The Protestant reformers believed you do deny sola Christus, solus Christus, even though you say you don't. You do deny sola gratia, even though you say you don't. And so that's why the Protestant reformers claim those. And what we are going to see, I believe, in application is a vindication of that opinion. What we are going to see is we're going to focus on those three solas as we look at Galatians chapter 5. And what we are going to see is that when you accept a gospel of works, a gospel of faith is not enough for you, you, without even realizing it, deny grace and deny Christ, and then in that process, deny giving true glory to God. So let's look at those three solas, and I'm going to use the word legalism as we outline our three points of the sermon. And let me briefly define what I mean by legalism, because there are few words in the Christian life that have been corrupted the way this word has been corrupted. Oftentimes in evangelicalism, a legalist is, so, is simply someone who follows more rules than you. But that's not what legalism means. Legalism is a very serious charge, and just because someone takes their Christian faith more seriously than us doesn't mean that they're a Christian, or that they are legalists. Just because they maybe believe the Bible has certain rules that when we read the text, we say, I don't think the Bible actually prescribes that. I think you're misinterpreting that. It doesn't make them legalists. The Pharisees were not legalists because they thought obeying God mattered. That's not what made them legalists. Obeying God does matter. The Pharisees were legalists because they believed it was your obedience to God that made you right with God. That's legalism, and it's a false gospel. Legalism is one believes that your works make you acceptable to God. That's legalism. That was the Pharisaical gospel, and that is what I am meaning when I talk about legalism. Legalism are those who think works play a necessary and important role in making us pleasing and acceptable to God. That is what I call legalism, and I argue that from Galatians 5, if you accept that kind of a viewpoint, you actually are then rejecting Christ. You are rejecting the work of Christ, whether you realize it or not. And I get that from Paul, because notice, remember, who is Paul dealing with in Galatians? He's dealing with the Judaizers, and these are not pure Jews. They are not calling these people to reject Christ. They're merely saying that you need to become a Jewish, you need to become Jewish before Christ can be of any advantage to you. They would say, yeah, we want to be saved by Christ and we want to love Christ and worship Christ, but how do you do that? How, how, how is Christ's sacrifice work? Well, you need to follow the law. You need to obey the law. They weren't rejecting Christ, at, at least in their formal teaching. But Paul says that they actually were without even realizing. Look at what he says beginning back in verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, what he's not saying is that anyone who's circumcised is automatically unsaved. Right? That's not what he means by if you accept circumcision. We can't take it out of the context. Circumcision is not a, the unforgivable sin, if you will. What he means when he says those of you accept circumcision, it's buying into their gospel of circumcision. Buying into their idea that you can't be saved without it. That's what he means. If you buy into that idea that circumcision, we've got to do this. My faith is not enough. I've got to be circumcised before I can be made right with God. Paul says once you abide, once you accept that position, you've lost Christ. 
There's no Jesus in that gospel. You might say there is. You might say, yeah, I believe I'm saved by Christ through my faith and through my circumcision, but it's still in Christ. But what does Paul say? How does Paul interpret that gospel? Christ is of no advantage to you. He's not of little advantage. He's not of a demeaned advantage. He's not of a distorted advantage. He's of no advantage. Christ does not save you when you think your works are part of what makes you right with God. Christ has no advantage of you there. There's no advantage to Christ there. He does not save you. He, he, he continues though in verse 4. He says it as emphatically as he can. You are severed from Christ. Who? You who would be justified by the law. Again, what do you think the Judeans might be thinking? They might be saying, we don't think we're justified by the law alone. We're not saying that you, don't, you, you can be an atheist, just don't believe in God, have no faith, have no Christ, just obey the law. That wasn't, their, that wasn't their position. Their position was you need to have faith in Christ, you need to have faith in God, but that's not sufficient. You've got to obey the law. And how does Paul interpret that? Justification by law. They would say, no, Paul, it's not. It's justification by law and by faith. Because we're still saying faith is important. And Paul would say, no, you've lost that. It's just justification by law. That's Paul's interpretation. He describes the Judaizers as those who would be justified by the law. Those who would say obedience to God's standard is part of justification. That is justification by law. And Paul says two things about that. If you believe that, Christ is of no advantage of you and you've actually been severed from him. You think that through the law you're getting closer to him. But you've actually been cut off from him. So you see how, from Paul's perspective, justification by law cannot be blended with Christ. You cannot say solus Christus if you believe in justification by law. They don't fit together. You can go down the justification by law road, or you can go down the Jesus road, but those roads never intersect. The further down the justification by law road you go, the further away from Christ you move. You have been severed from Christ. Christ will be of no advantage to you. And by the way, we have many historic theologians who have always seen this. John Chrysostom, who's one of the earliest Christian commentators we have, I want you to hear his words on this passage. How can one be saved who submits himself to the curse? Which remember, we've talked about that. That's why the law can't save you because you've broken it. So all the law can do you is curse you. How can one be saved who submits himself to the curse and repels the liberty which is of faith? If one may say what seems a paradox, such a one believes neither Christ nor the law, but stands between them, desiring to benefit both by one and the other, whereas he will reap the fruit from neither. In other words, let me summarize that for you. He's saying this paradoxical, isn't it ironic how the people who stand in between the law and Jesus and say, I want to bring these together for my justification. I want Christ to justify me with the law. He says it's ironic. These people think they're standing in the gap and they think they're being blessed by both. But what they're actually doing by standing in the gap is rejecting both. They seek to reap the fruit from both, but what they actually do is reap the fruit of neither. 
Christ will not help you get saved while you save yourself through the law. He is not a partial savior. He is not the savior who assists you in your salvation. There is no law in our salvation. There is no law in the gospel. They are what we call antithetical. Christ or law. John Calvin saw this same thing, reflecting on the fact that the Judaizers would have said what we often hear today. Well, we're not saying you're justified by the law alone. You still need Christ. Calvin puts it this way, they were not so grossly mistaken as to believe that by the observance of the law alone they were justified, but they attempted to mix Christ with the law. And then here's what he concludes with those who do that. Whoever wishes to have the half of Christ loses the whole. If you want half of him, you've lost all of him. Because Christ is of no advantage to you there. You are severed. You are cut off from Christ. There will be no advantage to you. And by the way, he tells us why this is the case in verse 3. How is this the case? Here's why. Verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. What inevitably happens in any religious system that thinks works are part of justification is they fail to recognize the true standard of the law. If, if, if the law is going to justify you, that's fine. You can try that. Go ahead. You can try that. But do not mistake the law's standards. What is the law's standard? If, if the law is going to justify you, do you, need to, do you need to fulfill it just pretty good? Or break it down into the categories and then just do the categories really well, which is what some of the, the Jews in the intertestamental period thought. Is that the law's standard? Does God grade on a curve? Right, as long as you're just better than everyone else who's trying to keep the law, then the law justifies you. What's the law's standard? Paul reminds them that when you get circumcised, what you are saying is, I am under the law. And when you're under the law, the law's own standard is what? Perfection. It's amazing how many religious systems, what they, even if they don't say it, what they're actually saying is that you don't, you don't have to be perfect to be justified by works. You just have to have a, a certain amount or the really good ones. But we don't get to pick and choose from the law. If you're going to submit yourself to the law, submit yourself to the law and be perfect. That's how Christ fulfilled the law in our place. He wasn't pretty good. He didn't just do the best job of everyone else. He was perfect. And that's why the law never condemned him. And if you think this is too harsh, I would just remind you that these are, this is very clearly taught, not only in the law itself, but you can find these words in James 2, 10 through 11, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. All you have to do is break one law, and what does that make you? A covenant breaker. All you have to do is break one law, and now you're a lawbreaker. So how can justification by law be mixed with justification by faith? Because the only way to be justified by the law is to do it perfectly. And if you do the law perfectly, you don't need Christ anymore. If you lived a perfect life, and you have no sin... Then when Christ comes and says, I have come on behalf of sinners, not the righteous, 
When Paul tells us that here's why Christ Jesus came into the world, he came into the world to die for sinners, that's not you. Because you're justified by the law. You're perfect. You don't need Jesus if you've been justified by the law. Because the law standard is perfection. But the second you break even one commandment, the law condemns you. So to bring the law and Jesus together in the gospel is to bring condemnation and salvation together in the gospel. Or it's to bring perfection with the perfected word of Christ. So it's either a contradiction or it's redundant. But either way, you cannot bring the law and the gospel together. And if you try to do that, you will lose Christ and you will reap the condemnation of the law. You will lose both the law and Jesus, as Chris Austin said. You cannot be justified by works. Jesus will either be your entire Savior or he won't be your Savior at all. By the way, turn in your Bibles back to Galatians chapter 2. We've, we've preached this sermon already. Paul's already very clearly said this. Just briefly, look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You can't mix them. If it's through the law, then the death of Christ was worthless. So why should you reject legalism? Because legalism rejects solus Christus. Legalism ultimately rejects Christ and his perfect, finished work on Calvary on your behalf. But notice what Galatians 2.21 also tells us. It doesn't just tell us that Christ died for no purpose if we're justified by the law. What does it also say? That if you go down this road, what are you doing? Nullifying the grace of God. So this leads us to our next point, that legalism doesn't just reject the finished work of Christ, it rejects the grace of God altogether. There is no such thing as, I believe we're justified, at least in part by works, but don't worry, I still believe that we're saved by grace alone, because the grace is what enables me to do the works. No, Paul says, if you go down the road of righteousness through the law, what are you nullifying? Making of no use, canceling, invalidating the grace of God. And that leads us to our next point. If you go back to Galatians chapter 5, you should reject legalism not just because it rejects Christ, but you should reject legalism because it rejects sola gratia. It ultimately rejects grace. Paul says this too in verse 4. He says not just that these legalists are severed from Christ, who would be justified by the law, but what have they fallen away from? Grace. Grace is not theirs to claim. They can't reach it. They've fallen away from it. So these people who are saying, yeah, we believe in grace and we believe in faith and we believe in Jesus, but you need the law. You need to be obedient. You need to live a certain good life to be saved. Paul says, you don't get to claim grace. You've fallen from grace. That's far out of your reach. You have nullified the grace of God if righteousness is by the law. By the way, this is exactly what Paul means in Romans eleven six 6 when he says this. If salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. For Paul, being saved, being justified by grace is by definition, by definition, it excludes works. 
He says literally, he says that again, if salvation is on the basis of works, grace would no longer be grace. You can't call grace and work salvation. You can't call that a grace system. By definition, grace is excluded. It, in Paul's mind, a grace and work salvation system is like a married bachelor. You, it's like saying you can't be married if you're a bachelor, otherwise marriage ceases to have meaning. You reject the grace of God when you think you can be justified, even in part, by the law. That's why Paul says you've been severed from Christ, you have fallen from grace. Grace is not part of your system. You need to reject legalism because it rejects solos Christus. It rejects the finished work of Christ. You need to reject legalism because it rejects sola gratia. It rejects being saved by grace alone. And lastly, you need to reject legalism because ultimately it ends up destroying the concept of faith too. Legalism rejects sola fide. And here's why. How does Paul conclude what he says in verses 1 through 4? Look at what he says in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith... We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So Paul begins by telling them, here's how you're not saved. Here's how you're not made righteous. Through the law. The law plays no, right, no, no, no part in making you righteous. The law plays no part in making you acceptable to God. So the question is, well, what does? Well, the, the technical answer is the Spirit. All right, that's what he says. It's the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who applies the work of Christ on our behalf. The Holy Spirit is our hope that we are righteous, that we are justified, and that we will one day see the culmination of that justification process by being brought into glory. It's the Spirit who does this, but how do we access the Spirit then? He, he, again, he, he already answered this question earlier. Remember he says in Galatians chapter 3, he asked them rhetorically, let me ask you this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He already asked them that. What does that mean? They can't say both. He's pitted them against each other. They can't say both. The half of the Spirit indwelled me when I believed, and then once I finished with good works, the rest of the half of the Spirit then finished me off. No, Paul says clearly, you believed in Christ and got the Spirit before you did any works. And he's making that same point again. We need the Spirit to as Titus says, wash us with regeneration. The Spirit has to regenerate us. The Spirit has to apply the work of Christ to us. But how do we get the Spirit? Not by works, but by what? Faith. So Paul puts these things on opposite ends of the spectrum. If you receive the Spirit by works, you don't need faith. You don't have faith. If you receive it by faith, you didn't need works. But again, what can't you do? You can't blend them together. You either receive the Spirit by works or you receive them by faith. So the Judaizers, by going down this legalistic system, without even realizing it, were rejecting Christ, rejecting grace, and rejecting faith. It was a purely law-based gospel. They wouldn't have said that themselves, but that's Paul's diagnosis of the situation. And I believe him. They're all law, no grace, no faith, no Christ. It's works, it's law, and all that is is condemnation. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, where Paul really drives this point home. 
By, by the way, as you turn there, now, now does it make sense why in, in verse 1, Paul referred to legalism as being a yoke of slavery, this heavy yoke, something you can't bear? Peter says the same thing about it in Acts chapter 15 when they were debating the Jewish leaders who were saying that the Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved. In Acts 15, Peter describes that salvation process, that justification process, as a yoke that neither we nor any of our fathers have been able to bear. Making works part of the salvation is a yoke that will crush you. Abraham couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. Isaac couldn't do it. Jacob couldn't do it. Peter couldn't do it. Paul couldn't do it. What makes you think you can? It's a yoke that will crush you. And it's slavery. But notice what Paul, how Paul really summarizes as well in Romans chapter 3. Beginning in verse, let's begin in verse 19. We'll read a long portion, but we're doing well on time. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Solus Christus, sola gratia, sola fide. You see all of those in there. You see how they work together? That we are justified by grace, which is a gift, verse 24, through the redemption of Christ, verse 24, to be received, verse 25, by faith. Solus Christus, sola gratia, and sola fide work together. You can't take one of those out and put something else in. You'll lose the whole system. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And if you mix with that equation, you're going to lose everything. There's no interchangeable pieces here. But he continues, verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who, what, has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of a law? By a law of works? No, by a law of faith. Yet again, he pits faith and works against each other. You can't blend them. And, and here's what's so powerful about verse 27. One of the most common objections you'll hear to all of this is modern day systems will say, all Galatians does is it condemns being justified by the Old Testament law. Because that's, that's what Paul's talking about. Paul's whole point is that the Old Testament law, circumcision, that can't save you. We're not, but we're not saying that. We're not saying people are saved by the Old Testament law. We're saying they're saved by the New Testament law. Well, there's a couple problems with that. Number one, Paul doesn't say that. Even though, yes, Paul is condemning Old Testament law justification, what does he put on the other end? Does Paul anywhere in Galatians say, you foolish Galatians, we are not justified by that old law. God's given us a new law to be justified by. 
No, he doesn't say that. Whatever he says on the right side would apply to the left, no matter if you interchange it with the new law. But he says it more explicitly here. Verse 27, what becomes of our boasting, it is excluded. So any, any system where I am made right with God because of my obedience, Paul's interpretation of that is ultimately it gives you room to brag to some degree. You can claim the grace of Christ all you want, but if when you stand before God on judgment day, the ultimate difference between you and the parish was something you did, you've got at least some room to boast. Well, uh, I only did those works by the grace of God. So God didn't give that grace to the people who were lost? No, he did. Okay, so God gave grace to everyone, but still only you made it here. So you can't give God all the credit. You can't give God all the glory. You deserve some of it. There goes soli deo gloria. There it goes. But he continues, and here's what he says in verse 27. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works. He universalizes it. He doesn't just say the Old Testament law. He, he says it explicitly. Can any system of works save you? Is there any system out there that can save you? And what's his answer? No, only a law of faith. For we uphold, verse 28, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through what? The new covenant law? Obedience? No. Faith. Could he make it more clear? But notice this. Notice what he does in conclusion, verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold it. So notice how careful Paul is to say that even though works play no role in our justification, nada, zilch, zero, nothing, that doesn't entail that works aren't an overall important part of the Christian life. He says to the opposite in verse 31, it is because we have been saved by faith apart from works that we now have the motivation and reason to uphold the law. So he's not telling you to not obey God. You should uphold the law. You should obey God. Every Christian in this place is obligated to obey God. Works are important. But when we're talking about how we are made right with God, that's a category distinction that needs to be very specifically addressed. When it comes to getting right with God, works are not in that equation. But when it comes to living the overall Christian life, works are very much in that equation. So Paul says in verse 31, just because we're saved by faith apart from works doesn't mean that we don't still try to obey God. And turn back to Galatians 5. That's exactly how he concludes the same message in Galatians 5. He was very clear that works cannot save you in 1 through 4. And then in 5, he established it is by faith that we are justified. And then look at how he concludes in verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but what? Only faith working through love. So we are saved by faith alone, but the faith alone that saves us is an energized faith. That word literally means energized. It is, an, it is a faith that is working through love. It is a faith that actually does something. 
You're saved by faith alone, but that faith is a working faith. The kind of faith that saves you is a faith that will ultimately be a working faith. This is why Martin Luther had that famous quotation. I don't remember if I'm getting it exactly right. But one of his very famous quotations was, We maintain that we are justified by faith alone, but faith is never alone. It's the faith of our Christianity that justifies us, but that doesn't mean that all we're ever going to bring to the table is faith. Because true saving faith has a character to it. And that character is one that works. So you see, Paul is not promoting what we call antinomianism. The Greek, or the, the root word of nomi, nomianism is the word nomos, is where we get the word law from. And you know what the prefix anti means. It means against. Antinomianism are those who are against the law. Paul is not against the law. Paul does not think that we shouldn't be good Christians and live holy lives and seek to please God. You will never find Paul teaching that. Paul believes we need to obey God. It's a requirement, not an option. And saving faith will do that. The Spirit of God will accomplish that in us. So he's not against the law, but he's merely maintaining this. What is the purpose of the law? And it's not to save you. It's not to justify you. When it comes to justification, that is when Paul is very comfortable jettisoning the law and the gospel. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and this is the only way we can truly give glory to God alone.